the red wig. It wasn't until Sinclair Tomlinson was under the witness protection program that he discovered he had an affinity for women's clothes. He spent most of his adult life known as the thorn within his community of quick hellos and long goodbyes. That was until he squealed and everyone started calling him the pig. Tomlinson was the top hitman for the Giovanni family in Staten Island, New York throughout the 1970s. He was known for executing with two clean shots, one just above the nose and one just below the heart. It was important to him that his victims suffer for 30 seconds before they passed on. To Tomlinson, there was no certainty in death, but as long as there was life, there was the certainty of pain. Pain, guilt, and remorse filled his mind after every killing. The obsessive, dull, pinching emotions lasted anywhere between 24 and 72 hours. So he binged on pizza, taco salad, and booze until the time passed. The only way he could truly move on from a killing was to leave a rose by the doorstep of the deceased's closest kin. To make sure the rose couldn't be traced to him, he always paid off a different homeless man or woman to deliver it. Once a homeless woman didn't deliver the flowers, so he shot her just above the nose and just below the heart. He never got over that killing. That woman had no kin for him to leave a rose to. The roses came from a garden in his backyard where he also grew tomatoes, cucumbers, and red peppers. Once a month, he would go to the market with his produce and sell it for next to nothing. All he wanted was for people to reap the benefits of his hard work. He wanted them to taste what his hands cultivated. He'd taken so many lives, 56 to be exact. It felt good to give and not take. It was at the market that the feds began to shape him into the star witness against the Giovanni family. A federal worker bought a tomato off of him in January 1981. She handed him a folded single and inside was a card with a phone number on it. Sinclair knew this was either the feds or he was going to be hit himself. All he could think to do was drive three towns over, find a payphone and call. It was the feds. They couldn't connect him to any killings, but they knew about the roses. If he didn't cooperate, they were going to investigate further. Sinclair spoke to his wife. She went ballistic for a few days. If it were up to her, he'd enter witness protection on his own and she'd go on her merry way. When news of Muggsy Brown and his wife getting hit by a bus circulated town, she changed her mind. The feds wired up Sinclair for two years before he was removed from the system. He continued to kill for the Giovannis until the day of the first arrest. Sinclair and his wife's names were changed to Patrick and Judy S. and they were moved to Alaska with their dog, Myth. Unfortunately, I can't give you the full information. Things went well for a while until Judy was diagnosed with breast cancer. She lost her hair, started wearing a long, wavy red wig, and then she lost her life. Patrick became very lonely and restless in the winter months. The pain, guilt, and remorse was worse than anything he had ever felt due to a killing. He and Myth were locked together in a home a quarter of the size of their old one and couldn't leave most days because it was too cold and too snowy. His best friend became a bottle of booze until spring came and the snow began to slow. One night he held his fingers like guns and pointed them just above his nose and just below his heart. Boom, boom, shouted Patrick. Myth barked over and over, begging for him to stop. The barking almost sounded like English to Patrick's drunken ears. Tears formed in each of their eyes. Patrick didn't even know dogs could cry. 
It made him cry harder. He reached around for a tissue but only found his sleeves. They became slobbered in salt water and snot. When everything cleared, he looked down to find Myth had his wife's red wig in his mouth. Drop it, yelled Patrick. Myth growled. Drop it, he yelled again. Myth didn't budge. Patrick picked up his bottle and threw it across the room. The smashed glass trickled to the floor with the sharp prodding of daggers. A whimpering Myth backed away and dropped the wig. Patrick struggled to stand. He'd toppled to the ground rolling around with the wig beneath his back. When he finally stood, it found its way into his hands. With the little space they had, Patrick and Myth parted ways. Patrick went to his room and Myth went to his crate. Sitting on the edge of the bed, Patrick stared at his dead wife's closet. The doors were creaked open and whatever light was left for the day shined inside from the windows. He stood up and opened up the wooden planks to find an array of flowery dresses. Sometimes she wore leggings and other times she let the cold bite away at her aging skin. Patrick felt the threading of the dresses with his fingertips. They were so soft. Her smell seemed to lift off the fabric the more he rubbed. The friction between his index finger and thumb increased so much the texture started to warm. For a moment, a fire seemed as though it might burn. Patrick walked out of the room wearing the red wig and a floral dress covered in weaved roses. Myth wagged his tail, running over to him like they hadn't seen each other in months. Patrick only wished he had put on his wife's maroon lipstick to complete the look. Who's a good boy? wondered Patrick with a high-pitched voice. There was a knock at the door. Patrick's stomach churned. He walked over to the window and saw the backs of two tanned men in leather jackets. He waved Myth over to him and grabbed him by the harness. When he had a good hold, he opened the door. Outside stood Polly and Peter, two up-and-coming hitmen from Staten Island. They both looked Patrick up and down. Polly looked to size him up and Peter because he found him to be somewhat attractive. All Patrick could do was look down to his freezing bare feet and smile. Hello? said Patrick in the same high-pitched voice. Polly and Peter looked at each other and then Patrick once again. They weren't sure what they were looking at, but they were sure this didn't look like Sinclair Tomlinson. Wrong house, said Polly. Yeah, wrong house, miss. Our apologies, said Peter. Patrick shut the door. He waited for Polly and Peter to pull away before he took Myth into the car. Myth hated going in the car. He always fidgeted around, thinking Patrick was going to drop him off somewhere and they'd never meet again. They ended up driving to the nearest florist where Patrick picked up a bouquet of roses. They were going to go on his front doorstep. It was time to let go. I don't really remember the origin of, uh, you know, the red wig. <laughs> I just know I wanted to tell a story about a man who had an affinity for women's clothing. Um, and also my family grew up, some of it, in Staten Island, New York, or in, you know, in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, so they were around and friends with some of the mafia members at the time, and so this is sort of a tribute, head nod to that. Um, the next story coming up is number 25, it's called Mana Part 1, it's a two-part story, it is a noir, it was probably my favorite one to write. And it is based upon Thomas Pynchon's Inherent Vice. 
I own the book, but I've never actually read it, though I have seen Paul Thomas Anderson's adaptation starring Joaquin Phoenix. So really, Mana is a nod towards uh, the movie, which I hear is a really good adaptation. So if you like Paul Thomas Anderson or you like noirs, or you like The Big Sleep or anything like that or Double Indemnity, you might like Mana Part 1. Maybe if you like The Big Lebowski, maybe I should have said that. If you like The Big Lebowski, you might like Mana Part 1. I don't know. We'll see. Up for you to decide. All right, thank you for listening and enjoy and goodbye.